friends, and welcome to Northern Static, the show where Canadian composers tell us about the state of their art. I'm bassist and composer Pete Johnston, coming to you from somewhere in Toronto. On the show, I talk to composers from a range of musical worlds to find out how they make their music, why it sounds the way it does, and what they think we should be listening for when we hear it. In this episode, I speak to composer, bassist, and synthesist Mike Smith, side person to the stars and leader of fine Toronto bands such as Muskox and the Mike Smith Company. He's going to tell us how he cooks up his psychedelic minimalist swamp prog music and give us a guided tour through a couple of his pieces. It will all happen here on Northern Static. Mike Smith is one of those rare Toronto-based musicians who actually grew up in Toronto. I met Mike in 2001 on the first day of my very brief stint as a jazz performance major at the University of Toronto, and I've had the great fortune to be part of his musical orbit ever since. For a few years there, I got to play Mike's music often in his band Muskox. Muskox was the most musically challenging, inventive, and downright fun band I've ever played in, so it was a great treat for me to get to ask Mike some questions about how he wrote that music. We'll hear some Muskox later in the show. Muskox was just one of Mike's many projects, so along with telling me about his general approaches to composing, we also discussed and listened to some of his more recent music. I think you'll find in Mike's music a compelling mix of the unexpected and the familiar, with memorable melodic hooks overlaid on complex rhythms, all played on an unorthodox bunch of instruments ranging from banjo to harmonium to moog synths. To get some of Mike's sounds in your ears, we'll start things off with a bit of one of his pieces from the 2016 synth duo album he made with Jonathan Ajemian. This is called The Fifth Transcombobulation. Mike Smith, Toronto composer, multi-instrumentalist, visual artist. Yeah, that's pushing it. Welcome to Northern Static. Thank you. So we're going to listen to some music. You're going to tell us about it. Okay. When did you start composing music? It's hard to say when you know I started composing music properly because it was always... Uh, my dad, as you know, was a musician, so he was always like recording us, uh, recording me and my sister when we were kids, you know, making up songs and radio shows as everyone does and seemingly we're still doing uh <laughs> and uh you know as a small kid i was sort of always doing that always making stuff up there was a you know i had a casio keyboard with the program rhythms and stuff and which i still have which is kind of fun but you know like it's just got beats in it or whatever so i would make up tunes on that but then probably you know i think i was about 11 or 12 and started playing guitar started getting to the Beatles and whatever else and then started growing my hair and then started a grunge band and this is at about age 13 or so I don't I didn't write any tunes but it led me to want to do more with music so when I went to high school I uh, went in the beginner strings class and uh, learned the double bass and eventually ended up in the stage band and uh sort of immediately wanted to try and 
write my own music like we were playing in stage band class. Do they still call it stage band, do you think? They didn't work, it's for sure. I wonder if it's still called that. Anyway. I don't. I guess the idea is that you're not dancing to it, but it's dance music. You would. I don't know. They might call it jazz band now. They might. But there was, I mean, I guess that was more or less my introduction to reading music at that point, or at least being responsible to do so in a timely and accurate <laughs> fashion. And next to the music room, there was this cruddy little office with a, with a computer with finale on it. Mm. Uh, and we could, you know, go in at lunch and use that or whatever to, wow. to try and make lead sheets or whatever. So around the same time, you know, we got like a new computer at home. And uh, somehow I convinced my mother to buy Finale for me. I mean, maybe it was 15 or something like that, 14 or 15, because I just wanted to, like, that was the most interesting thing was being able to sort of write the music and make the, make the charts look good. So it was sort of like I wanted to make the notation more than I was hearing sounds and uh, everything. I just sort of wanted to see what happens when I put stuff down on paper and put it in front of someone. And then, you know, obviously that led to hearing things and, you know, and wanting people to play them. And then, you know, I had a band in high school with a bunch of friends and we wrote tunes the regular band way of just jamming nonstop. And somebody came up with a part and everyone fleshed it out. But we had horns. Uh, so we got to write uh, arrangements for the horns. Mm. Which was... Rock bands were all about parts. Yeah. Rock bands are all about parts, repeating the same song repeating the part. nine million times so someone can figure out what they're doing. But we did, I mean, you know, we were really into like Mr. Bungle. So that was the kind of music I think that we tried to make. High school circus rock. I need to write you to an platypus. Yeah, so... By the time, you know, by the time I went to university, I had had some experience being able to sort of write an arrangement from the from the beginning and hand out charts to people and have them play it without always turning into a train wreck. And uh, for me, it was way more interesting than learning other people's music. Or I never bothered to learn how to learn <laughs> other people's music is another is another option. Mm-hmm. Like it was much more fun to sort of write it out and have, have people people join in. And you've always spoken highly about your band teacher too, right? Or the guy running the jazz band or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Gary Cameron was his name. Just want to give some props yeah. to the band teachers out there. Yeah. Yeah. He played the tenor saxophone. I think he played in the lighthouse at some point. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know for sure, but I think he did. Uh, and I don't even know if I ever heard him play the saxophone, but he was really supportive and he was really good at getting people going. Although he was really into people playing in the band at school but uh, did take me aside at some point and uh and actually like called my mother and said like he did not want me becoming a music bum which was whoa what it would mean for like going into music after high school which is what what he had done but he was not supportive in terms of long-term music making was he right uh probably <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Should you have listened to him? Yeah. I don't know if I should have listened to him, but uh, he was probably right. Right. Yeah. Now, I know that you were uh, uh, deeply into Frank Zappa at this time. Yeah. Which seems to be a pretty formative influence for you. So how did you come into Zappa? Oh, that would be directly from my dad. I learned later on that my cousin, 
who's a fair bit older than me, at some point had come over, like, you know, maybe when I was an infant or something, or maybe even before I was born. My dad had just said, you can have any of my records that you want, because he was sort of done listening to, like, he sort of saved maybe 25 records that he wanted. And then the rest of them he gave away, which apparently was like hundreds of records, but including a lot of, you know, mother's records. So I never heard them, but my dad told me about them. So he would like sing Brown Shoes Don't Make It to me. Like he had it all. all so he, knew the, he knew the records. He knew the records really well. Um, and I ended up knowing the tunes from just him sort of sharing the tunes. He wasn't playing them, playing on them on the guitar or whatever. He was just singing them. So then I ended up finding a cassette of Absolutely Free at the HMV at York, Yorkdale. Uh, and I was really into it. And then just throughout high school, basically, anytime I had $20, went to the uh, Ed's Record World. I never had enough $20 to get all of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, so, you know, there was obviously a lot of other stuff I was listening to as well. But what was it about the music that got you, got you going? Uh, it was at that stage of being a human being. It was really funny and uh, really like smart to me, you know, like a lot of the observations on whatever life politics and stuff which i don't i think i've grown to not uh you know i'm not really as subscribed to those as i might have been when i was 15 years old but uh at that point certainly it was like i learned a lot from listening to lyrics and stuff and uh, and you know taking books out of the library and because frank zappa's music is like it touches so many bases i sort of learned like that was the root that I took to get to any other kind of music, really. Or, you know, learn about all sorts of things because they're just references to random things in culture or whatever, and I had to find out what that was. So, yeah. So like following threads through? Yeah, following threads. And then definitely when the internet became a thing, then it was just game over, you know, because... I did the same thing with Russia, which is why I read all the Anne Rand novels as a child. Okay. <laughs> Should have paid more attention to those, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, I never really thought about the... I mean, the music was always interesting. Like, if I could find something that was a, an odd type signature and learn how to count it. But I never I never really thought of it as being that difficult. So I'd set a somewhat high standard for... <laughs> it ruined a lot of music for me, <laughs> I, have to, I have to say. In what way? Just sort of a level of complexity, like rhythmic complexity, and maybe just the ability to change change at a time and just, you know, switch up stylistically or anything, like change the instrumentation immediately. And like, there's not really that many rules in terms of stylistic stuff. I don't know. That music can go anywhere. It definitely refers to a lot of, uh, a lot of conventions or whatever, but they're just there sort of as, uh, like as little signposts for, for something like for a certain flavor or, or, you know, yeah. most, most of the time mocking everything. Like right. it's pretty cynical music. Takes for granted that you know what 
it's what it's being based on. Like it requires quite a large knowledge. Large is not the right word, but like certainly a wide breadth of musical mm-hmm. knowledge to well, keep it, up with what's going on. But it seems like it led you to develop that kind of wide yeah. knowledge by wanting to find out more about what the individual bits were. For sure. And I think I still I still want to find out what the bits are. Not mm. those bits, but other bits. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you're listening to lots of other stuff, but can you trace the Zappa influence? How has it informed what you do? That's a good question. I mean, there's definitely some characteristics, like musical characteristics, that I think show up in my music that are just a result of listening to a lot of that. Like there's a lot of melodic moves and, and stuff that are that are quite similar to some of the things that Frank Zappa does. A big one is uh, melodic and harmonic material is not systematically dissonant. Like, you know, there's certainly some of his music that's 12-tone music or whatever, but the basis of most of it tends to be pretty diatonic, just sort of Lydian zone all the time. Lots of use of two chords, if you call them that, just a root, you know, stacked fifths, a root second and fifth in the chord and those sort of sounds. Like I use those a lot. But then in terms of practice, just the idea of sort of delivering a piece of music, you know, finished to an ensemble. That's how he did it for sure. Or, you know, that's that's a conversation for another time. But mm. uh, for the most part, like coming in and saying like, okay, this is what the rhythm guitar does in this tune. Whereas for the most part in a band, you know, it's still like that everyone coming up with their parts mm-hmm. and sitting and, you know, you work something out. Maybe whoever wrote the tune has some chords and the vocal line and an idea of what the groove is. And then everyone else kind of figures it out. I have a tendency to micromanage. But, you do show up with pristine parts for your uh, music. Well, I also just like doing that because it's enjoyable. But I think that it's something I try and fight nowadays, but, uh, that's definitely like the idea of thinking of everything and going in with, with all the little details figured out. Does that answer your question at all? Yeah, of course. <laughs> and like it's a, you know, through your research of how he did things, it's informed what it makes sense to you to do. Yeah. But you say you're trying to fight that now, like what changed? Just looking at how much, uh, you know, if you give musicians the freedom to come up with whatever they want, you know, generally, the music's going to be enriched by that because, you know, people usually come up with the thing that they do best uh, and no one gets hung up on learning a part correctly. And also, you know, I'm, I can't come up with a better drum part than a drummer can. Like there's no, you know, it doesn't work that way. If I played drums, then, you know, I would have a better idea, but yeah, trying to figure out where that, like how to communicate that. And with, you know, given the limited, resources everyone has for like rehearsing music and learning music, you know, trying to actually have time to come up with a shell of an arrangement and be like, okay, let's build something solid out of this. Uh, and everyone understand what's supposed to happen and understand the shape of it. I mean, it could be easier just to hand out, hand out charts, but the experience, uh, you know, late in the Muskox game, when we decided to memorize all the music, I don't know if we decided or I dictated. (laughs) I was going to say, I don't know if we decide. We decide. Yeah. Um, (laughs) 
But it, I mean, I'm sure you can agree with this. Suddenly, like the music opened up. Oh, like immensely, and totally it was way more natural and totally different experience. Yeah, you know, people were using their ears a little more than their eyes. So, you know, it's it's tricky to come up with like the kind of music I like to make is pretty involved. So it takes a long time to learn that way. You know, you have to, everyone's got to be able to invest time to, to learn these parts or whatever. Uh, and trying to find a balance. Cause I'm, you know, I'm not that comfortable with asking people to do that because nobody has the time to do it. And you know, there's not exactly a big payoff other than being able to play this music. So yeah, trying to strike a balance where I've provided the complex stuff that we would have to spend forever rehearsing and then everybody else can kind of do their, do their thing with not that much of an investment of time and still have it be successful overall. So are, are you looking to move towards a more kind of collaborative model of it? Uh, I'd like to, I'd like to try cause I don't think I've ever really like written music with somebody else. I mean, the closest I've come to that is taking a piece someone else wrote and then, uh, which in this case, uh, uh, generic organs, Muscox too, which was a piece that Jeremy Strawn wrote for us to play in a duo with banjo and guitar. And then I took that, uh, I think I, he just called it generic music. And it was actually based on another piece of music too, uh, which you'll have to ask him what that was. I took that and then wrote another piece around it. Uh, so it wasn't really collaboration <laughs> as much yeah. as me just stealing his idea. Right. <laughs> and then actually from, with his permission. Yeah. With his permission. <laughs> and then from then on, then Ali Burkock uh, improvised an organ solo. And then I chopped up a bunch of his improvised solos and then wrote sort of a, another section based on that. Super so, sax style. Super sax style. And, uh, and that definitely really sounds like Frank Sabbath that part because it's got the sort of like Spike Jones, uh, percussion orchestration going on. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know. I would like to collaborate. Now I don't. I don't know how to start. That's the that's the tricky thing, and what to do. But uh, I mean, I've definitely been think, been thinking about how to how to perform stuff more easily. Well, yeah, like it just back to what you said earlier about um, just sort of learning to play and playing in rock bands and how it was entirely collaborative. People would come up with their own parts and bits and bobs get stuck together. I think about that a lot because I did the same thing. It seems harder, a lot harder to do that as an older person because there was time in, in high school to sort of do all that. Yeah. That seems, that seems the, to be the issue, to just have the time to work out your parts. Yeah. Another thing, uh, now that I think too, which was really important for me, I think when I was a late teenager and probably throughout when I was in university, the idea of like being a professional musician was really important to me. And 
part of that was like make a professional band where it's like I guess I had a concept that you don't you won't have time for that because everyone's so busy because they're such hot shit players they don't need to rehearse anything they just need to read well enough uh so sort of writing music in a way that anyone could play it which I've definitely since learned to be totally impossible and incorrect but like the idea of like making spending a lot of time making really good charts so that when your trumpet player sleeps with your wife you can just hire another one the next day and it's going to be perfect because mm -hmm. you were prepared perhaps you could tell us about your time in jazz school <laughs> i don't know if i i i to be perfectly honest i don't know if i got that attitude from from mm. jazz school I kind of feel like I already had that idea and then uh, just interpreted all the information I was given in a way that, you know, just like confirmation bias kind of situation where I was like, yeah, like this is what it means. I mean, there's certainly, you know, that approach, the, the approach to, you know, like the easy way to teach improvising leads to that sort of generic concept of making music where it's like this is what you do when this chord comes along this is this is how you do it just learn all these tunes and i don't know play the way you're supposed to i mean that was appealing like the idea of doing something properly was definitely appealing to me now i really don't care and i wish that i had cared more <laughs> about certain things but you did get into jazz music through yeah. high school and 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 went to went to jazz school. How did that square with the, the Frank Zappa and the other stuff? And what impact did that education have on where you're at now? Well, I mean, it was huge because you're surrounded by musicians all the time. You know, spent four years doing nothing else. And for me, I tried to, I just steered towards the things that seemed most like what I wanted to do, uh, which in terms of jazz school, like I wasn't, I mean... I couldn't hear the harmony in the same way that people were doing it. And I think part of playing the double bass is you can't play half the stuff you're supposed to be learning about. <laughs> um, or it wasn't actually that, it, or I like was kind of faking it. I, I was only interested in the music up to a certain point. I don't know. But about halfway through school, I ended up, I was playing in three big bands and like just listening to, you know, jazz orchestra music. And then also, you know, trying to do as much legit as we call it, <laughs> playing as I could and, you know, play with different instruments. Yeah. Like different musicians who were more into composed music than learning how to improvise. Well, yeah, you did some early music stuff, right? And yeah, for sure. I did, uh, I did some early music, which mostly came, I probably came out of just friends I met, you know, who I thought were cool or whatever, and that's what they were doing. And, and I got interested in the music and started playing. And by the time I left university, I was really interested in like writing jazz orchestra music. That's what I wanted to do. Like I was really into Bob Brookmeyer and, you know, Jim McNeely and Maria Schneider and that was the music that got me really excited. And I mean, at the same time, I had been introduced to Steve Reich and Captain Beefheart and then early music. 
so these things started to mush together and the first idea I had was like, okay, how can you make big band music that has that the rhythm section sounds like the magic band playing Steve Reich, uh, <laughs> which sounds really stupid, but that's like precisely what I wanted to, I thought, okay, what is this? What is, what is that sound? So I tried to write some music like that. And I did, I wrote two pieces and uh, tried to get people to play them. And I mean, I have little recordings of them or whatever, but uh, I don't think anyone else was interested really. But soon after with the early music thing, I had the experience of playing in a continuo section and there was another, that was like another alternative to the jazz rhythm section, basically. You know, that was really fascinating seeing what, you know, having spent so much time with chord symbols, basically, you know, like everyone, everyone got, gathered around the old lead sheet doing their thing, mm -hmm. seeing, you know, kind of this exact same thing in a continual part, you know, where it's just the bass line and, you know, and the changes on top. But more specific, like, you know, what voicings you should be using. Mm. And the experience of having, you know, five or six people playing that same part together mm. and how that came together was pretty fascinating. My, my understanding of, limited understanding of continuum playing is that it's kind of just a melodic bass part. Like the there's melodies are really strong. Yeah. And a lot of that stuff. Yeah. They're not incidental to the chords. Like they're, yeah. they're strongly functioning melodies that, well, that's sort of our foundation of other stuff, other melodies on top. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the chords are there just to describe what's happening in the harmony. Uh, <laughs> like compared to a lead sheet, like where a lead sheet tells you the numbers on top, tell you what your left hand's supposed to be doing. The, uh, you know, a continual part has your baseline written and then tells you what your right hand's supposed to be doing to fill in the, fill in the harmony. Uh, you know, there's a lot more to it, but uh, it's cool. It's really cool to play, you know, to hear like two harpsichords and a lute play the chords at the same time and not get in each other's way at all. And then, you know, have a bunch of eight foot bass players playing the line and then, you know, whoever's on the 16 foot just leave out all the difficult bits and <laughs> just chug away. Um but uh, anyway, so that, uh, you know, I think I still had this idea that it was a really great format to have uh, like a big band. The way that music is written and the way this, this structure is, uh, is so clear for, you know, you know this for sure, like swing tunes where you have like you play the head and then there's, you know, a solo. Then the backgrounds come in on the next chorus and then there's like a saxophone soli or something. And then, you know, shout chorus and then the head out. Uh, and that form is really dictated. You can have a million charts that go that way. Uh, and it works like it's a set of rules that you can, you can follow. Standard uh, forms. Yeah. And then the different sections have their roles and the rhythm section has its role. So, uh, I mean, most of the music I've written follows that format pretty religiously. Uh, there's some things that don't, but it's definitely like a comfortable place to be 
uh, and playing with that concept is really fun. So just like the structure of a standard big man arrangement. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, certainly a lot of the Muscox music is written that way. Funny. I mean, there's a lot of blues forms. Uh, there's a lot of shout choruses <laughs> and stuff. And uh, anytime, you know, anytime there's an opportunity to make rules uh, to follow in writing a composition, I'll go for because it makes the job a lot easier because then you're not like, it's like there's sort of, you suddenly have some of these, some objective guidelines of what you're supposed to do. So what do you mean by rules in that context? Uh, so coming up with, I mean, structure is the, is a big one for sure. You know, with a lot of the muskox music, there's some, I sort of started with a big, you know, the first three pieces I wrote for that, for that group. The idea was to put them out on three inch CDRs, which is what happened. So I had 21 minutes. So I started with that 21 minutes and then divided that up into, okay, I want it to be three parts. So I went fast, slow, fast. Um, and then from there decided how long those parts were. This was all sort of, uh, you know, golden ratio style. So if you listen to one of those and you add up the seconds, I mean, you know, it gets a little wacky with how you perform it, but you can chop a hole in the piece right there and something important happens, um, you know, at that spot around two thirds or whatever mm. it is. Where, where did you learn that idea? Hmm. That's a good question. I, I can't tell you. I don't know. Might've been from like an art history class. I took mm. an art history class in university. Because that, that plays a huge role in my music, too, and I can remember very specifically where I learned about it. Right. Which is doing an analysis of Bartok's Music for Strings, Percussion, and Celeste. Okay. And reading a book about it. And that was the first time it had, I, it had sort of occurred to me that there was a way to organize music that was not a 12-bar blues or, yeah. or whatever, or sonata form or something like that. that there's yeah. a whole other system of way of thinking about structuring the time. And similar thing... Uh, about two thirds through, a big thing happens there, and it's it's pretty it's pretty clear when you look at the score how that all that all happened. Yeah, it's the only piece of classical music I know. <laughs> you could find a lot more of them mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that happens in. Uh, I mean, I'd also, I mean, I guess I uh, like I'd tried some different things with form from reading Steve Reich's book, the like collected writings or whatever. He talks about how those pieces are structured. And I don't know, just looking at different structure has been interesting. And I mean, it's, it actually came out of the, you know, looking at big band charts, looking at like, you know, like, is it behind the score? What's the book? You're talking one that's got three, three and one in it. It's, the, it's got three and one in it. And, yeah. Thad um, um, Jones. Yeah. Oh, what is that? I think it's called behind. Well, anyway. This is Google. Break. I'm going to Google it here. <laughs> inside, inside the score, inside the score. That's the one. Uh, so yeah, looking at inside the score and looking at the way those charts are structured and then starting to explore different structures, definitely like Rondo form. Uh, and then I got really into Django by John Lewis and I've probably written half a dozen pieces that 
of the form of Django because it's really cool. Like it has this slow introduction and then the way that the, the way that the solo form is, is like, like a turnaround happens in an odd time. So it sort of puts you back in a different place in the form than you expect it to be. Uh, it's got that nice floaty little groovy two chord bridge on it. And then like a recap in a different key. Like it's cool. Mm. It's, it's a really cool form. So I copied that a lot. <laughs> but anyway, this is coming from the Fibonacci thing. I mean, that was just sort of where do you put the climax in a piece of music? I followed that a lot. Uh, you know, now I try to write pieces without thinking of that. Try to not be as strict because it can get boring for me. So tell me about how you, uh, just your basic process of putting stuff together when you're composing. Okay. Uh, usually what I'll do, I mean, for the most part, I still do, I still will start with a structure. I have an idea of what sort of piece I want to write, you know, so I know how long it's going to be, roughly what tempo it is, maybe the kind of feel. Uh, and then I'll work uh, at the piano for the most part, sometimes with a guitar or whatever, and a little notebook and then start there usually write half a melody or maybe you know maybe a whole whole melody or figure out some sort of harmonic progression uh and then at that point i'll just sort of go directly to finale and start writing it out and uh see what happens with it like i've got the form in mind so like what happens with the little, this little snippet that develop it develops it into a full seven minutes or whatever. Do, do you want to go through a piece of music? I would love and to go through. We can do that. A piece of music. Okay. What are you going to play for us? I'm going to play a piece called Muskox Jr. And so this is on a record by the band Muskox. And we've talked about Muskox a bunch, but maybe, maybe set us up a little bit with this band. Okay. Of yours. So Muskox is a band that I led from 2006 to 2012. I believe, which Pete Johnston uh, played the bass in for most of the life of the band, I think. The band started as a concept, actually, very early on when I was trying to write that uh, big band music with Steve Reich rhythm section. That was it. And those first two pieces were called Muskox Alpha and Muskox Beta. <laughs> and then finally got realized years later um, when I wrote a piece for double bass alto saxophone, banjo, and uh, uh, percussion, basically. And then that was a success, and people seemed interested in hearing the music. So I had to write more music with that for those four people. And uh, at a certain point, the group felt a little too much like chamber music for me. I was getting more interested in uh, guitars and drums. And uh, I had an idea that I wanted to create the music that I had imagined myself sort of playing as an adult when I was, you know, 14. Like I wanted to make that band up. Uh, so switched around the instrumentation from, at this point, the, the group was alto sax, cello, double bass, electric piano, vibraphone, and banjo. And I was playing the banjo now. So I decided to rework it and uh, just go with a 
pretty standard setup of bass, drums, keyboards, um, guitar, and banjo, but, you know, like a second guitar. And, uh, yeah, so the first piece I wrote was called Muskox Jr. Uh, so we can listen to it now. Hey, here we go. I'll tell you all about it. Muskox Jr. from the album Invocations Transformations.
learned some things. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while since uh, it's it's been a while since since I've listened to that. Yeah, me too. Um, but I can tell you some things about it. Hot banjo playing. Oh, thanks. Uh, so this is definitely yeah a, a piece that in a way wrote itself once I had the structure. So like I said, this is the first piece I wrote for like this new version of the band. Uh, and I wanted it to sound like I was really into listening to the dirty projectors when I did this. Uh, so I wanted to try and write music that sounded like that. And this is as close as I got. So I tried to structure it like a, like a song, right? So it's, it already goes intro verse, verse. There's a pre-chorus, chorus, bridge, verse, verse, chorus out. Uh, but the, the math is a bit funky, which is why it was not a hit. Yeah, that must be it. That's yeah. what, yeah, just, just doing the Max Martin analysis on, yeah. on why it wasn't a huge hit. The, yeah. math, the math was wrong. <laughs> so what happens in this one is the two, the chorus is right before the, uh, um, the magic, uh, the oh, magic point. So okay. it is, it is structured that way. So the first thing to happen in this tune was, uh, coming up with the interlocking um, banjo and guitar parts that come in the second verse. Uh, and uh, essentially it's the same, it's the same pattern. So there's the, the banjo pattern, which is, uh, which just repeats sort of in the space of one octave over and over again. The pattern starts the same way on the guitar, but just keeps going. So, you know, whatever intervals it's using, it, it goes to the bottom of the guitar range and then back up again. So it ends up being a different length. Um, I think maybe, I can't recall for sure, but I think maybe the banjo is nine and the, and the guitar is 13. So they fit together. The notes are chosen to be like a vague tonality and, you know, fit together, you know, it's not necessarily pentatonic, but, you know, as sort of universally consonant, as a pentatonic scale would be. So I remember, you know, I came up with those two patterns and I sat with a little graph notebook um, on a hotel bed while uh, Jeremy who plays guitar on this was finishing a paper while we were on tour. Uh, and I wrote out the two little patterns uh, next to each other on lines and then found out how long it took for the two of them to match up again. So that dictated the length of a verse. So from that, I sort of, I calculated, okay, what is the structure of this tune going to be? I'm going to have two verses at the top, two verses at the, at the end. Figured out all the other, the other parts. Uh, then the organ chords that open it were just, you know, something that fit obviously with the, uh, uh, with the banjo and guitar ostinato but we're very much influenced by uh, a tape, the Swedish group tape. Um, the, and the sort of, I mean, it could be, the chords could be directly from one of their tunes. <laughs> I mean, if they're not, I mean, I, you know, I didn't like lift them and say like, now they're mine, but uh, you know, that's what I was listening to. And definitely like having the Hammond organ play those sort of chords, you know, that's a sound that that group uses a lot. Um, so I chopped up the number of measures it, 
So there's, we have the, the length of a verse, the number of measures it takes for the guitar and banjo to meet up again. I chopped that into three different sections and, you know, and filled in organ chords for that amount of time. Then, well, you know, there's some other little sections too that are just, you know, just written based on the same material, um, which I think is the case with the chorus as well. There's uh, a deliberate reference to Roundabout by Yes, um, because I was like, I want this to sound like prog rock. Uh, so what is more prog rock than Roundabout by Yes? So I had that little verse of the organ chords and the guitar and banjo, and then I just listened to it and tapped out a rhythm for a melody uh, on top. And basically using the, the rhythm of that melody as like a window, like, you know, sort of if you cut, uh, cut holes in a piece of paper and put it over the, over the patterns, I selected the notes that appear in the guitar and banjo at those points and made those into a melody. So you hear that in the, uh, in the third and fourth verse. That's what the organ and the tempo blocks are playing. Uh, and that also, I used little snippets of that for the bass part right at the beginning. Those little doo doo boo dee boo boom. Uh, that's where those those come from. Well, I can definitely hear the Zappa influence in the in the tempo blocks, right? And the use of pitch percussion. Yes, all over his orchestrations. That is that sound for sure. Yeah, and I did recall the idea, I mean, initially with this version of the band, I wasn't going to have any percussion at all. The idea that was that it was just going to be keyboard, bass, guitar, and banjo. Uh, and then Jamie Drake, who had played vibraphone in Muskox, he really wanted to still be involved. So I was like, okay, yeah, we can have percussion. Uh, but I didn't want drum set, uh, which it ended up being. But uh, so I was like, well, what can I do that isn't drum set? So the idea was there was just bass, snare, hi-hat, and then temple blocks and other toys. So I had intended this one to, like the idea was to be able to play it on the temple blocks while playing the hi-hat and bass drum part oh, wow. at the same time, which I th think happened, but it was harder than I thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> what is it you said about you know not being able to write as good drum parts as a drummer? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, impossible drum parts. Yeah, impossible. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm sure you could do it. I think it. I think it happened eventually, but mm. it seemed daunting at first. But it really like there's really a very small amount of material to begin with. Like it's really just those chords and that interlocking banjo guitar thing and done. Came up with a bit, sat down at the computer, wrote it all out, got everyone together, and we played so it. So you're doing a lot of composing in finale. Yeah. work in finale. For sure. For sure. So not a whole lot of freehand stuff before that. Not a lot. I mean, usually just a page. You know, there's a page of material. 
mm-hmm. on that. And I still do that. Oh, like it's that's sort of the best way to start, I find. But I'm trying to I've been trying some different different things, you know. Definitely using voice memos on the phone, which I think a lot of people are finding handy now. You know, you just as you're walking down the street or whatever and you come up with an idea, sing it into the phone. So now there's like a step I'll go through and listen to those little thirty second clips at the piano or whatever and work mm-hmm. them out into into something else. And quite often they're really tuneless and I'm embarrassed at my <laughs> my lack of definite pitches. Are you able to reconstruct like, from the from the voice memos or is it uh, Well is or create something new with right. the same sort of contour? <laughs> And it also depends, you know, where you are when you come up with the idea. Because mm-hmm. if you're like, you know, walking down the street and there's a bunch of people on, you're not going to be like singing at the top of your lungs into your phone. Uh, so there's a lot of just like, <laughs> okay, sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> just enough to remember. Just enough to remember. Where does this piece sit within your work as a whole? Um, I. For me, that would be a good example of like a default, like my default setting of writing music. Just, you know, in terms of the way it's structured and the kind of the kind of harmony that's in it and the general vibe of it too. It's not really that exciting. You know, there's nothing really dissonant in it at all. It doesn't get very loud, but uh, has hopefully a, an internal logic to it that like basically, you know when it's going to end. Mm. Once you're about thirty seconds into it, you know you should like you sort of get the feel of how long this piece is going to be. It ends at the right place, which I like to do. Great, Muskox Junior. Maybe maybe get another one lined up. Uh, we can talk about a newer piece. All right. Yes. So this is. I mean, before when I was talking about trying to come up with music that. Uh, Sort of all the heavy lifting was done um, before it entered the hands of other musicians. Like trying to make music that's easy to rehearse because the Muskox music took a lot of rehearsal. We spent Did a it? lot of time, I think. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> it always... <laughs> Fond memories. You know, it can always... Anything can always use more rehearsal. But, you know, trying to come up with an idea that's like, okay, we're only going to be able to have two or three rehearsals ever. And so let's you know, let's do our best. So uh, the most recent group I've been writing for, uh, the instrumentation is a vocalist, bass, violin or trumpet, uh, and mono synth, and then programmed backing tracks. Uh, and then there's also like chorus vocals by me, the bass player, and uh, either Mika or Rebecca, whoever's playing the violin or trumpet. So the idea here was in, you know, having a programmed aspect of it, you can sort of give a lot of the difficult work to the robot. You know, I sort of looked like what I tend to get picky in terms of the rhythm section parts and stuff. And those tend to take the longest to rehearse as well, you know, especially if it's odd time or whatever. Uh, And they also don't require as much flexibility you know they don't have to be as expressive in time or whatever or, uh, you know if you give more melodic materials to the live musicians then you know there you go uh, so that's the concept behind this I mean there's a 
bit more to it, but that, you know, in terms of realizing the music, that's why the instrumentation is set up this way. Uh, so this band has played a handful of times. Um, and last December, we were invited to perform in a concert tribute to Moondog. So I arranged uh, some Moondog music for this ensemble and as well wrote, uh, uh, you know, I was already writing new music for this group. And uh, like a few of the pieces were influenced by Moondog's music as you know, a little flavor of, you know, I was writing new pieces anyway, so let's, uh, let's make these Moondog type pieces as well. So uh, this is a piece called Privateer's Bounty, and I guess we can listen to it.
So that's a recording from the aforementioned concert. And that accounts for some of the uh, questionable male vocal <laughs> there. <laughs> there's, a, there's a couple things in there, but, you know, I'm sure anyone listening to this has they'll, been there. They'll forgive you? Yeah. Well, that, yeah. I mean, the most notable thing about this that's different from what we've listened to so far, obviously, is the adding vocals into your music, which is something you've only recently really dug into. Yeah. So maybe tell us about that. Well, it's something I've, wa- I mean, it's something I've wanted to do for quite some time and not really known how. Probably the same, you know, at the same point in, you know, 2010 or whenever the Muskox turned into a prog rock band, that was probably the start of like, okay, you know, like I would like to try and write songs. Uh, and I never really got around to it until, uh, you know, a little over a year ago now. It's because I sort of found the model that I wanted to use uh, in, you know, salsa, like listening to, you know, I sort of discovered some salsa music that I liked and uh, became really excited about uh, the relationship uh, between the... Uh, the lead vocal and chorus vocals, and then also the way that uh, the instrumental accompaniment worked. So, uh, you know, specifically, I was listening to Willie Colon and Hector Laveau, like the, uh, you know, the original band that's on like La Grand Fuga and, and you know, in that era uh, with the two trombones, uh, two chorus vocals and uh, lead vocal. Uh, so... For me, that gave me uh, a framework that wasn't like a folk song or a pop song or uh, it was different. Like it was an exciting way to do it and also a way to uh, structure the instrumental parts so it wasn't sort of like a, you know, sort of regular pop tune where you'd be like, here's the verse, here's the chorus, now you have a guitar solo or whatever. You know, you can have sort of the uh, soloistic instrumental stuff intertwined with the uh, with the vocal and this piece is not an example of that <laughs> but uh, the, the other music I've we can look forward to the rest of it you can look forward to the rest of it i mean there's little of the back and forth but that was sort of how this group came to be um, mm-hmm. i tried to make the most compact version of of that band you know because i think there's seven or eight people mm-hmm. in that band um, so the forms are more circular with um, almost call and response kind of things yeah. going on in the. There's call and response, and definitely the, you know, the tunes are are structured in a way where there's like a verse, and then, uh, you know, basically after the verse section, it just launches into a montuno, where all sorts of stuff happens, and you have that call and response and the ostinatos, and you know, there's a lot of flexibility with uh, with that format, and it's really cool to have the vocal soloist have you know have the role that an instrumental soloist may have in mm. you know in jazz music where there's kind of these these backgrounds and you can do it both ways you can do it with the instruments and you can do it uh do it with the voices yeah we can also you know can hear the latin influence in the in the percussion part too the clave-ish y- yeah thing well the, i mean that this is the one that's most directly moondog influenced too mm-hmm. uh because that, uh, well, he must have been drawing from that I w- Cuban drumming music or something. 
I would imagine. I mean, yeah, it's hard to say exactly where he pulled the influence. Of it. I mean, he certainly, you know, he was in New York mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> from the forties to 1970 or so. So, you know, he certainly heard some of that music, but the like drum machine part is the idea. Like it's a, like a synth trimba. The trimba was the three drum instrument, triangular drum. Like it's a big one that sort of makes a bass drum sound smaller one that's kind of a snare drum uh and then he would play a woodblock with a clave in his left hand and then the drums are struck with a maraca mm-hmm. in, his, in his right so that's what steve shelley from sonic youth invented that no no <laughs> he traveled back in time oh man yeah okay so yeah that that was the idea i tried to make like synth trimba for that tune so what does the programming you know, not having a real drummer and, yeah. you know, as if that mattered. But um, what does that offer to you or why did, why go that route? I mean, there's the practical aspect of like to realize the parts I'm programming, I'd need three percussionists and then the band is much bigger. And sort of dictating something. So it's kind of a recession salsa band? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could be it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so it is practical. And, you know, telling a drummer or percussionist to play a specific part the entire time is kind of a drag, too. And for me, like, I've really been trying to learn about uh, salsa or Cuban music or whatever you want to call it, uh, and trying to get into it and learn all the different styles and all the different rhythms and what the different instruments do. And I feel like I'm on a bit of a tangent there. So, like, applying those developments to my music it's a lot easier to just program it than you know to have someone else who's on the same wavelength who's like it's like okay so i want this to be kind of like the role of the bongo bell but it's not it's like played on a different instrument or and right. it's like a different rhythm but it's you know it, it's got the same sort of character it's got the the same sort of function right uh, in the music it's right so switching functions and instruments and interchanging yeah who's doing what yeah so to sort of really get yeah to communicate all that to someone else i mean it's definitely possible and it would probably be better if a human being was playing it but you know i also want to hear the music while i'm alive <laughs> <laughs> but you're also being inventive with the sound design of the of the samples because you're not in this example anyway and, yeah. and other ones i've heard you're not just trying to recreate the exact drum sounds and having them no for sure like, yeah you're playing with it with the timbre yeah yeah yeah, it's pretty, like, it's, I mean, it's unlimited. Whatever you, whatever you want to put in there, you mm-hmm. can have. And it also means, you know, because there's just the two instrumental voices, if you want to beef that up a little bit mm-hmm. um, in terms of the harmony, you can just add another synth voice maybe yeah. in the backing track or something. Yeah, because that's, that's what I find most compelling about the electronic sounds is not not as, they, they fall flat pretty quickly when you're trying to just recreate the sound of an acoustic instrument. Yeah, but as if you let that go and just let them be electronic sounds, and then you just have a lot more flexibility. Yeah, and and the listener might not find themselves thinking, "Oh, that's just a bad sounding piano," yeah. <laughs> right? Or that's just a that's just a synthesized saxophone. Yeah, yeah. Well, those sounds, yeah, there are sounds that have been around for a really long time that people are used to hearing. One of the reasons for the having the mono synth in there too is to sort of bridge the gap between the mm. between the acoustic sounds and the programmed stuff. So it's like it is like a softer uh, kind of sound with the same expressive possibilities of a 
you know, live acoustic instrument, but is electronic. And so, you know, hopefully makes the ensemble sound a little more natural. Mm -hmm. Just speaking of natural, what about the, what, what about the words? Uh, because that's a whole new thing too. <laughs> that's totally a whole new thing. And because uh, um, they're your words, they're my words. It's something I, I'm not entirely sure I know what I'm doing yet, but that's fine. It's fun. So, you know, I'm just trying to write some words. This tune is about a flavor of ice cream <laughs> 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 that, uh, you know, I attempted to eat. <laughs> <laughs> In Nova Scotia, you'll tell me the exact location. They're looking like in Blomidon. There we go. In Nova Scotia, they're looking like yeah. ice cream ice um, cream shop. So it's about that, and it's also about um, a group of concrete cottages that were built uh, nearby there, which I don't. I've now come to learn that I don't think I've actually been to. It, well, it's it a was, manufactured memory. It was different concrete oh. cottages that I saw. Okay. Also somewhat nearby, but near okay. near Harborville. But anyway, the lyrics are about the experience of ordering an ice cream of a flavor that they'd run out of at the looking lake. And um <laughs> and is like some speculative fiction about the uh builder of uh said concrete cottages. Right. So that explains the uh crushing disappointment. The crushing disappointment they didn't have the ice cream. They didn't have the ice cream. We've all been there, so fundamental human experience kind of thing yeah i mean they had it but it looked right it, it was sort of melted and weird anyway El elderly maybe they've got it there now <laughs> yeah so the what inspired me to write this tune about that i mean the ice cream flavor is called privateer's bounty which is a great title mm -hmm. which is a great name for anything but it's you know in trying to learn to deal with text uh i've use the same approach of coming up with a structure and following that as I have for writing music too. So in this tune, the whole first section of it is just going through the alphabet. Uh, as in the start of words? Yeah. The first letter. Like Robin trips over one of the lyrics at the beginning. Um, but it, I mean, I don't know if it's super apparent, but it's like all becoming deeply entertaining. Falmouth goers having just come lately. Um, Mountains, noble outlook, planted roadside, uh, certain unknown variations, waylaid. And then I guess there's no X, Y, Z. But, uh, and, you know, there's some play in there, obviously. But that was the idea. It's like, okay, well, I have to write words. Like, how do I do it? So if I have rules about mm -hmm. how to do it, then, uh, you know, obviously fitting the melody I've come up with is is important. But... You know, there's that framework of like, okay, so I have to follow the alphabet. So, you know, I know so objectively I've done something successful. I don't have to think about the fact, like, are these words any good or not? Right. Some kind of organizing principle. Yep. That leads into the role of the listener in, in the music and, and what what you think of their relationship to the music needs to be. And possibly, like this, what you just said, is, is it important for the audience to be able to figure out that kind of thing or to hear that kind of stuff? It's not essential at all, but I would like to build stuff like that into music. So there's the possibility of, of like discovering something new. So it's not necessarily something you would put in a program note. No, I wouldn't. No, not that. You know, if I've taken the structure of a piece from another one or whatever, you know, if there's like credit necessary to say like, okay, this is actually based on this or 
or whatever, then sure. Uh, but no, it's more fun to like keep it there as like an Easter egg, you know, when you sort of look, you know, you may not notice that. And then mm-hmm. if you realize like, oh, it's the alphabet. <laughs> right. Then, <laughs> um, not, not too many people are going to pick up on that one. No. But it seems similar to me to what you were talking about in the earlier piece around kind of pop song, verse, chorus, pre-chorus structure that, again, a listener might not pick up on that, but it's important for how you put it together. Yeah. Or do you want the listener to pick up on that? They don't need to pick up on it, but I think it's probably effective. Like using a structure that you're used to is Mm -hmm. definitely effective in presenting something that makes sense. Like so that you can, like, you know what's going to happen. And it might work too that like something, you know, if you have an organizing principle like the alphabet, everything's going to make sense. Like your brain is going to pick up on that, even though you're not like, this is a subconscious thing because you know, you know how the alphabet goes. I've heard it. If you've gotten this far. So, and I mean, it's, it's the same thing of like putting in like little musical quotes or stylistic references and stuff just to, you know, hopefully subtly influence the listener into being able to understand what the music is about, like trying to communicate what the idea is. So it's not just sort right. of a bunch of nonsense being being spit out. So how much do you have the listener in mind? I think a fair bit. Because uh, some there's definite choices I've made that I'm trying to make the music more comprehensible by a listener, someone who hasn't heard it before. Yeah, um, you've, you've used the phrase uh, in, inviting. Yes. And, or generous. Yeah, for sure. And for that, for me, like definitely trying to avoid uh, abrasive sounds, obnoxious, obnoxious sounds. Like I don't want to turn away a listener. I definitely think about that and try not to make the music inward facing, you know, like really quiet or like requiring effort from the listener because I don't think yeah like that's definitely not inviting it's not like to you know do sort of little like weird insect music like you're saying like okay somebody's got to pay more attention to this I would rather you know make it like the pretty flower that attracts a bee (laughs) (laughs) you know if you're going to do some sort of crafty or complicated stuff or or anything weird then there should be some sort of candy attached to it hmm. it's easy to take in and whether that's uh putting a nice melody over some weird interlocking odd time stuff or using a more familiar instrumentation yeah i think i think what we you know what i hear in your music and certainly in these examples is the timbres are very inviting pretty warm sounds uh that come together in a nice way yeah there's a lot of thinking about timbre. Well, and it's sort of everything is a variation on some established uh, instrumentation, usually. Mm-hmm. Like something's re- like taking the role of another instrument, you know, in a uh, in some sort of model, model mm-hmm. ensemble. Is there a difference for you within that between the recorded versions of a composition or how they might be played live? Yeah, I mean, you know, you have to be practical when performing live. So you can't have every instrument you own with you. Uh, I mean, you can. And you can get rid of most of your instruments and get it down to one or two, and then you can do that. That is also possible. I mean, sometimes you do have to carry everything with you. 
But I mean, that's, you know, that's another thing for programming too. It's like, you can have anything there. You don't have to have an RMI piano and someone to play it. If you just have that on the track, then you did bring it with you. But I mean, yeah, the recorded version allows you to add instruments and stuff. And then also, you know, like fiddle around with the performances and make them more accurate maybe, or, you know, whatever, just take more time, sort of have infinite rehearsal. But I, I mean, I don't think that actually translates, you know, nothing is going to sound as good as really being able to play a piece of music than hitting record and doing it that way. Like professionals? But, like professionals. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, I mean, that's going to be the best, but that is very impractical now. I tend to listen to a lot of old music and most of that music is played by bands who played seven yeah. or eight times a week. So they sound really good. Certainly the salsa bands. Certainly the salsa bands. Mm-hmm. So and you can you can hear it. And now you have to fake that. How could you play that much? Even if you're wealthy, you can't play that much. <laughs> just, just keep doing it till the money runs out. Yeah. Well, I guess it seems that the the, the programming thing is a using that in your music is a bit of a response to the challenge of getting musicians together and getting everybody able to learn stuff, or maybe not, maybe you're thinking about it differently. But um yeah, are there any particular challenges you've been working away at? I think the biggest challenge is just being able to have a reason to perform music, like have an audience to listen to it. You know, fortunately, there are places to play. But, you know, being able to fit a composing practice and like leading a band basically into a lifestyle that produces enough income to live in a city where musicians live who are going to play the music and an audience is like, it's mostly, you know, I would say mostly financial challenges more than anything else because it's at the heart of any other problem. So you're saying the challenge is late capitalism? (laughs) Probably. Uh, Membership in the 99% is getting you down? It is. It's (laughs) getting me down. I mean, I don't, I try not to, think about that stuff much in relationship to making music because I would rather have composing and performing and listening to music as a refuge from the rest of life. I don't like to get involved with, you know, political themes or anything in music and art because it's... You get enough of that? I get enough of, you know, you get enough of that and it's really trying to protect... You know, I have more, spend more energy protecting the music from that than, you know, trying to make it a part of it. Right. Because that's a political act, too, of of carving out non-productive time or non-consumptive time. Yeah. I mean, you're still consuming, though, yeah. if you're listening to music or whatever. I just want to think of it completely outside of that. Um, but there aren't really opportunities to be... I mean, there's definitely opportunities to be a professional music musician and make your living doing that. But that has to be your mission. And certainly there's not a ton of room to do that and be weird about it. I mean, definitely I applaud the people who make it successful, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who can be successful in doing that. But for me, that doesn't, doesn't really work. And it, you know, not being able to play all the time dulls your ability to perform having no real demand for the music you make is also quite disheartening 
you know, coming up with a reason to write a piece of music and go through the work to do that, um, it, it becomes very frustrating when it has to be like self-generated all the time. And obviously leads to the idea that the music isn't any good. And maybe it isn't any good, but that's definitely not going to be productive. You're not going to come mm -hmm. up with any better music if you don't think your music's any good to begin with. There's no reason to do it at all at that point. It's just like stop completely. Yeah. Well, you don't rely on the free market thinking to make aesthetic judgments. Like the reason nobody likes it is because it's no good. Or, or the reason no one's paying for it is because it's no good. Yeah. That way madness lies. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> then, then you're, you know, then you're, then you're just Max Martin trying to write yeah. music that everybody's going to like. Yeah. And I'm definitely not trying to make music that everybody likes, but I'm trying to make something good. But I feel like the way to make better music is to make more of it you know not just like as much as possible but to keep on doing it and to mm. be active and like have your brain working and think like oh this is good but the amount of effort it takes to sort of finish a piece of music you know whether that means even performing it at all or like you know usually that means recording it you know you don't want to end up with a pile of unused stuff so mm. i don't know are those good challenges yeah, those are, those, are, those are good challenges because just to, to wind things up here on a potentially a more hopeful note, you have any ideas or some musical visions that you haven't been able to realize due to financial or technical reasons or whatever? What could you do or what would you like to do if you could? What would I like to do if I could? I would love to have a large band that performed regularly. That would be the best. 10 people or something like that 10 to 15 people who were able to play frequently enough that you know a you could memorize the music you know it was worth people's time to do that and uh you know that you were able to take the music to a level that's not you know i know that if i write something it's going to be better when somebody else plays it than what i can imagine that's so exciting when you write something and then there's aspects of it you didn't even realize were there um, or it has an energy that you know someone else like that's an incredible thing for somebody else to put their energy and their excitement into a piece of music that's more satisfying than having someone who listened to it come and say like i really like it that's great i mean that's that's amazing but then to have another musician like play something you wrote and bring something to it that you couldn't have thought of that's that's the best yeah and that's rare it's a rare feeling that's what i would like to do <laughs> all right well uh, uh we'll try and make that happen somebody buy a building and and uh, you know put a sound system and a stage in there so that music can happen any rich people out there uh, uh give us a space where mike smith can fulfill his quite modest dream of playing music more often with more people. <laughs> He's not talking, uh, you know, music for a thousand tubas on the moon or anything like that. We can, we can hopefully get there someday. Thanks so much to Mike Smith for joining us here at, in the, in the studio. Anything you'd like to plug, anything we need to know about? Um, I mean, you can hear some of my music, probably all of my music, uh, on my SoundCloud page. My username is Mike Smith To. Amazing. Yeah, and there's some links there to places you can send me money. You know, 
And uh, you have a Bandcamp page as well. I have a Bandcamp page. Uh, I've got a couple. There's the Muskox Bandcamp page uh, for some gold moldies. Uh, you can also look at Mike Smith Company. That's the most recent stuff uh, okay. on Bandcamp. Well, yeah. we'll go out here on a piece from the uh, from the Mike Smith Company from uh, the album Famous Wildlife Movies. And uh, that'll take us out. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Pete. Yeah.